while you're running a race, if you're forcing something to happen, how much mental energy does that you know cost you? If you're so focused on, I got to hit this, I got to hit that, you know, that's like going to take away from your race. And so if you're just saying, okay, if you have a more chill attitude, still competitive. But if you're like, okay, this is my split. I'm going to hit this. Oh, I missed it by five. That's okay. I'm going to keep, you know, if you have a much more neutral voice in your head, you're a lot more likely to actually, you know, do the thing. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. Hi, and welcome to episode 26 of Runner Clicks, the Passionate Runner podcast. I am your host, Whitney Hines. I'm a lifelong runner, a certified running coach, and founder of the MotherRunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And I think you guys are going to absolutely love and benefit from this episode. Today, we are hearing about mental strength training with Claire Bartholik of the Planted Runner podcast and the Planted Runner Run Coaching. Claire shares some really amazing tips and mental tricks that I'm pretty sure you have never heard of that's going to help you be and run your best. Some more about Claire. Claire wasn't always a runner. She started running in her mid-30s simply to get into shape for her high school reunion. It wasn't about getting faster or racing. It was, to be honest, mainly about vanity. But something changed in her as the miles slowly added up and the reunion came and went and she just kept on running. And she quickly cut down her marathon time from a 4.02 to a 2.58. Claire is a multiple-time Boston Marathon qualifier, state Masters Marathon champion, and a competitive Masters athlete. But as amazing as it was to accomplish so much in her own running, Claire's greater passion is helping others achieve their dreams. As a coach, she shares the tools and techniques she has learned to help athletes reach goals they never thought possible. She is an ASAF certified running coach and a N-E-S-T-A, Certified Sports Nutrition Specialist. Claire is also the host of one of the most popular running podcasts in the world, the Planted Runner Podcast, which I was on the other week talking about runner safety. So please be sure to listen to that. We're going to get to our conversation with Claire after the short message from our sponsor, Runner Click. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles, so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. It's great to see you and have you on. Thanks for having me, Whitney. Happy to be here. So you're not too far from me. You're in Asheville, right? Yes, Asheville, North Carolina. I love Asheville. So the leaves are now turning Yes, they're just starting to turn. So there's still a lot of green, but they're just starting to turn. And today is just one of those gorgeous Carolina blue skies. So absolutely wonderful. Oh my goodness. Have you gone for your run yet? 
no, I'm going to do that after this. I <laughs> turn into complete wimp when it comes to cold weather. So I am a big fan of the summer. I hate the cold. And so thankfully, I have a job that is flexible so I can run anytime I want and I wait <laughs> until it warms up. <laughs> No, I find that fall, I love fall running more than anything, but it can be very confusing what to wear. And I am a wimp when it comes to cold weather now too. And I'm always shedding layers this time of year because I hate being cold and then I warm up after the first mile and yeah. Yeah, I actually have a chart that I put in my closet when I'm getting dressed because I never trust myself to dress properly. I know I'm a grown adult, but (laughs) I still need a cheat sheet. And, you know, so it tells me what I wear in 50 degrees, what I wear in 40 degrees, and oh, don't forget your gloves and all of that. But another thing that I do sometimes is I'll do a warm up mile like around my house and Mm -hmm. then come back to my house and drop a layer because I'm too much of a wimp to like wear the shorts and t shirt, you know, right away. So I do that to kind of, you know, keep myself warm for the for the warm up mile. Yeah, I do that a lot too. And I don't trust myself with the temperatures either. Like I write about this stuff. And then when it comes, I have a race tomorrow morning, and it's going to be in the upper 30s. And I'm like, Oh, man, like, I don't want to wear tights or a shirt. You know, (laughs) like I'm used to running and racing in my sports bra and my shorts. And you know, so then I just like second guess everything. So anyways, I love your running story from what I've read about it. I just find it like it's very I feel like kind of unconventional where you've gotten into running like a little bit later in life. So I would love for you to share your your running background. Okay, yeah. So Running has been a part of my life kind of in spurts, you know, throughout my life. So I did a little bit when I was a teenager. My dad would go for his three-mile run every other day and mark it on his calendar in the kitchen. So, you know, I had that example. And I, so I ran once to train for something as a kid. I tried out for the track team and ran one race and came in last place and immediately quit. <laughs> And then in my 20s, I decided to train for a half marathon to get over a breakup. And so I ran a half marathon and then got back together with a guy and quit running. (laughs) (laughs) And then in my 30s, I was just getting ready. You know, like my high school reunion was coming up and I was just like, well, I want to look good for that. I know running works. And so I'll just run with that goal, complete vanity goal of getting in shape, you know, for a bunch of people who I used to know 20 years ago. And Uh so uh, (laughs) I did. I ran. And for the first year, you know, I really hated it. I did not like running at all. It was absolutely an ends to the means. And but I don't know when it happened. There was no light bulb moment, nothing like that. But along the way, I just kept on running after the reunion. So I think it was because, you know, I had built up some fitness. I was in great shape. So I didn't want to lose that. And so the same half marathon that I ran in my 20s was coming up. And I'm like, well, let's see if 30-something me can beat 20-something me. And I ran it and I did. I beat my half marathon half marathon time by about seven minutes. And I was oh, just wow. like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then one of my Facebook friends was running Boston that following year. And I was like, well, 
I could run Boston. And I didn't know that you had to qualify for Boston. So I just thought you could just do it. And no, you can't. And so I learned that you had to qualify first. So I, you know, read on my own and tried to absorb as much as I could to train for a marathon. And I did not qualify my first time. I made a ton of mistakes. I mean, I chose an Asheville race. Asheville is very hilly and cold in March. So it was a really, really tough course. But I ended up doing it, qualifying for Boston on my second try. So that was really inspiring. And, you know, I went from my very first marathon was a 402, which is not bad at all. That's very respectable time for your first marathon or any marathon. It's a good time. But my final marathon after training for them, you know, twice a year was 258. So I really improved a lot. And running has absolutely changed my life. So when did you run that 258? Like what was the the gap between 402 and 258? So I mean, I like like most marathon runners, I could say the whole thing. So it was like 258, 328, 326, 311, 311, 306. Three hours and 29 seconds. That one hurt. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then 258. So it was, you know, my first few jumps were pretty big. And then the jumps got smaller and smaller. As I got fitter, that's, you Mm -hmm. know, a really normal progression that it gets harder and harder to shave off time as you get better at it. But but yeah, so... It was a journey that, you know, I got really, really into and really, really serious about. And it was my passion for sure. And, you know, it came to be more, less about the marathon itself and more about the puzzle of it, you know, Mm -hmm. figuring out what I needed to do to do this super amazing thing, you know, learning as much as possible. I absolutely obsessed with the science of it and how you do it. And then figuring out how to implement it for myself. So yeah, it was is quite a journey. And you know, I, I told myself in the last five k of that marathon, if I made it, if I finally got my, you know, Mount Everest, my Moby Dick, whatever you want to call it, if I finally got my dream goal, I wouldn't have to run a marathon again. And I haven't since. I still run. I still run a lot. But for me, the marathon, again, I figured out that puzzle. And my personality is like, okay, what's next? I know how hard it is to train at that level. And for me, it's not super inspiring to see if I can get you know, a 257 or a 252 or whatever. Shaving off a minute is not motivating for me. It's, it, it was more about doing the big thing. And now, you know, what's next? What's next? So for me, the thing that really lights me up now is helping others achieve their goals. So, you know, doing it for me is great. Don't get me wrong. It was a great journey. But now I get to do that at scale and I don't have to do all the hard work. (laughs) Other people get to run. Just crack the whip on other people. That's right. Crack the whip. So, but no, I mean, absolutely. Through that journey, I have found my life's work, my life's passion, It is absolutely what I was put on earth to do is to help people transform their lives through running. And I am just so excited to honestly wake up every day and do stuff like this. So it's been a wild ride. Oh, I love the way you put that transform people's lives through running. Oh, absolutely. beautiful. You know, running is just a metaphor. You know, we talk Mm -hmm. about what we're doing, you know, oh, do these splits, run the long run, do this, have rest days, whatever. But it's so much more than that. And the lessons that we learn through running can translate to so many other parts of your life. I mean, 
running is hard. And in order to do it well, you have to take some real steps. Like you have to be patient. You have to plan. You have to get through hard days. You have to be consistent. You know, all of these things that we learn. And then when you go do the thing, whatever it is, whether it's 5K, half marathon, marathon, whatever it is, whatever your dream is. And when you do the thing, you're like, I just did that. I did all that hard work and look at what happened. You know, maybe I can do that as a mom. Maybe I can do that in my business. Maybe I can renovate a house, you know, whatever your big thing is. The marathon or running in general just teaches you that you can be a badass. Am I allowed to say that? Sorry. Yeah, yeah of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You are the first person to swear on this podcast. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> oh, no, that's I love the way you put that. That is so true. The whole, I mean, it really is just you have good days, you have bad days, but you keep showing up, you keep plugging through and eventually you will get there. It's progress is not a straight line. And no. I think like, you know, embracing that, that like ups and downs are part of the process in running and in life just just helps keep you going. Absolutely. So your puzzle, what were some of the pieces that you figured out that really helped you solve your running slash marathoning puzzle? Well, I mean, there's so many things. So there's lots of things that I just did from the beginning that were absolutely crucial. You know, besides the running part, I think training has always been a big part of my fitness with running. And so I would just go to a class at the gym. They're actually kind of hard, heavy lifting classes at the gym twice a week or three times a week sometimes. And I was just super consistent with that. So strength training was absolutely essential. I never got injured in the nine marathons that I did. And I think that that has to do with strength training a lot. So yeah, you um, can hang your hat on that one for sure. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. I mean, I got injured like walking down the street and like tripping, you know, and, <laughs> but that doesn't count. That's not running. <laughs> I know. I kind of messed up my knee yesterday jumping on a trampoline with my oh, no. kid. I'm like, oh my gosh, Whitney, what are you doing two days oh, before no. a race? Anyways, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. But, and you know, a couple of other things that I think were crucial was joining a group, a running group in my town was absolutely essential because not only did I have people that felt like my tribe, but I had real examples of people that were just doing so well. So people in their 30s and 40s and 50s who were absolutely crushing it, you know, older than I was and doing such amazing things. And it was like, well, if she can do that, I can do that. You know, people with professional lives and people with kids, you know, I'm sure you get asked a lot, like, how do you handle it all? How do you have a full-time job and kids? and train for a marathon. But it's, you know, there's so many examples of people that are doing it well. So, I mean, those were some real keys to me, like overall. But then as I got closer, there were some things that I had to do that were kind of, you know, contrary to standard marathon training advice. So towards the end, I realized that I had to cut my mileage. I was running way too much and mm. it wasn't serving me. I had to cut a speed workout a week. So I went down to one speed work a week. And instead of two, you know, usually people do like track on Tuesday, tempo on Thursdays, mm -hmm. and maybe some speed on the weekend. So I had to cut that Thursday out and just run easy a lot more. And, you know, I had to let go of some of that stuff. And then when it came to pacing, I had to learn what my strengths were and maximize those. So 
I never accomplished the classic negative split. Like that was just not something that I was ever able to do, but I realized that I am really good at even pacing. So, you know, set a pace and forget it. Like I can do it to the second, you know? And so I really got good at that. So I never could really speed up that much at the end, but I could hold that pace like, you know, for 26.2 miles. So even effort was my strategy instead of, you know, the classic, you know, negative split or negative effort. So those are the things that worked for me. Those are not necessarily, you know, what's going to work for everybody, but those were the things that I needed to figure out that pulling back was actually the way to move forward. So, I mean, I think you highlighted another beautiful thing about running is that it can really self-awareness. Like you had to be really self-aware to figure these things out about yourself. As far as the knowing that you needed to pull back, that running higher mileage was not working for you or it was too much intensity during the week. How did you figure that out? I mean, did you have classic overtraining symptoms? Yeah, I was going down that road. I was going down the road of eating too little, you know, and in not recovering enough. So, you know, at my highest, I was probably running 90 miles a week. And, you know, most weeks were in the 70s and then I would peak at 90 miles. And at first that really worked, you know, it really worked with my body. You know, these miles are super easy. I'm talking about 930 pace per mile. So I'm not going super fast, but I was out there a long time and I just wasn't progressing. I was kind of plateauing. I was feeling tired. I was feeling irritable. I was feeling stressed. So I never really had any injuries, like I said, but I was just feeling just super frustrated and and it like nothing was working. And I felt like I was just holding on to something, you know, my goal just way too tight. I felt like Uh I was just really, really uptight about it. And it just, it stopped being fun. You know, Uh it was just like, it became a monkey on my back. It became, you know, all this stuff. It just like, why am I doing this? And I was like, okay, so pushing more is not working. Let's do the opposite. And when I tried it, I was like, ah, yes, this is it. So and that's, that's when how you, I figured it out. And that's when you ran your eventually ran your 258. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You just completely described me in 2019. And I didn't realize it until, you know, I've been injured for a couple of years and now I'm not, but just getting back. But like it I it didn't it all of that didn't come to light for me until much later until mm-hmm. after it happened that I was like, this is not how you should be feeling during marathon cycle mentally and physically. Like you said, it was a monkey on my back. And so I would love to kind of dive into the mental training aspect because I think that's really important and start mm-hmm. there with, I think it's a very fine line to walk between wanting to better yourself, be competitive with yourself, be competitive with others, but also maintain a healthy relationship with running and not place too much importance on it. Did you figure did you figure out how to I mean, I guess you pulled back on your training, you realized that that was too much. As far as like mentally, how were you able to navigate those waters of being competitive and still holding your goal but not holding on to it too tightly? 
Yeah, that was, I mean, that was something that I had to learn. You couldn't have told me to do that. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah. You know, like I couldn't have listened to a podcast and been like, oh, that's what I need to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I had to learn it for myself. And so, you know, it was probably coming super, super close, you know, getting three hours and 29 seconds, just being like, Okay, I have been, you know, like I say, goals are like a bar of soap. The the tighter you hold on to it, the easier they slip away. And that's Ooh, what, yeah. That's good. And so I just felt like I was just gripped, you know, I was gripping that goal so much. And I was like, okay, it's, if you think about it, while you're running a race, if you're forcing something to happen, how much mental energy does that you know, cost you. If you're so focused on, I got to hit this, I got to hit that, you know, that's like going to take away from your race. And so if you're just saying, okay, if you have a more chill attitude, still competitive. But if you're like, okay, this is my split, I'm going to hit this. Oh, I missed it by five. That's okay. I'm going to keep, you know, if you have a much more neutral voice in your head, you're a lot more likely to actually, you know, do the thing, you know? So mile four, I dropped my fuel bottle, you know, 300 calories on the ground. And I'm just like, Oh my God. But I didn't do that. I'm just like, it's okay. I will get fuel. I will be fine. You know, it's a lot about training yourself to talk about these things before they happen, you know, cause you're, so hyped up when you're in the moment that you really need to practice all of your self-talk ahead of time. You need to visualize dropping your fuel bottle. You need to visualize your shoe coming untied. You need to visualize missing your splits by 20 seconds. What are you going to do when those things happen? And so if you practice it mentally ahead of time, your brain is like, oh, I've been here before. I dropped my fuel bottle before. I know it's going to be okay because I'm going to get a gel at the next station or, or whatever. You know, so prepping your, you can prepare mentally by doing the thing actually a million times in person. So like the better, the more times you run the marathon, you will get better at it because you've done that. You know, your brain has experienced that before, but you can kind of shortcut that by doing the marathon in your head ahead of time too. So your imagination is incredibly powerful. And your brain feels like you've done something before if you take the time to sit and visualize and do the thing in your imagination. It, it sounds really silly. A lot of the the mental strength techniques that I teach, you know, if you, I mean, we're going to go into these, they're going to sound sort of ridiculous and silly, but it's amazing how well they work. I think that's an awesome tip. And I think it's so important to Think about worst case scenarios mm -hmm. leading into a race so that you are prepared for them. But then also don't want to psych yourself out, like putting yourself in that feeling of, oh, I'm not going to hit my splits. What am I going to tell myself? But not making that, like not predetermining that that's what's going to happen in the race. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You need to do both. You need to visualize the positive and visualize the negative. You can't, doing one or the other is not going to serve you. You need to do both. So if your goal is to hit four hours in the marathon, for example, you imagine the race clock at 359 because you don't actually want four. You want sub four, don't you? Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so you imagine the finish line clock 
at, in your head at 359. You know, you imagine yourself doing the best possible because again, if you imagine it, your brain feels like you've already done it. And so if you, you know, are imagining this whole perfect race, that's awesome. But if you don't imagine the things that could potentially go wrong, they'll freak you out. You know, you'll be like, well, I didn't think about my shoe being untied. Oh no, my shoe's untied. You know, and and you go in this crazy spiral of self-talk and negative self-talk. So you have to prepare for both. So definitely imagine the best and prepare for the worst. Have you found that by exercising that like positive self-talk muscle that you now do that in other areas of your life as well? Oh, yeah. I haven't really thought of that that is so much directly, but yeah, there are there are certain techniques that I try to do throughout my life that that I, you know, have learned from the marathon or coaching other people in running for sure and, you know, talking to my kids. <laughs> when kids kids can be stressful too, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you got to have some statement of the century. No, yeah, so they you got to have some positive self-talk with those things. <laughs> for sure. Oh my goodness. Yes. I know that's exactly what I was thinking about because I mean, goodness, like as a parent, you often feel like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> There's Absolutely. no right way of doing things. So what are some things that people should possibly envision going wrong in a race, like having to go to the bathroom, Mm -hmm. shoe coming untied, falling off pace. What are some other like common scenario, bad weather? Yes, that's a big one. Bad weather is something that you definitely have to, well, you should run through it in practice if you can. Mm -hmm. The hard part about marathons is you're training in a different season than you're racing. So sometimes you can't always practice it in real life. So you have to plan for that. Obviously, heat and extreme wet cold are the worst things for marathon racing. So those are things that, you know, you number one, want to imagine what is going to happen. But number two, you're going to have to readjust your expectations. You know, you are not going to run your best in 90 degree weather, and you're not going to run the best in 38 degrees and pouring rain. And you have to accept that before you start the race. Because if you don't, you're just like, oh, well, it's bad weather, but I still want my A goal. Like Uh that's going to defeat you before you even start. Yeah, I think if that race was your A goal, like potentially using it as a training opportunity and then picking a race like two or three weeks later or something could be... Yeah. I don't know, coming up with contingency plans, maybe. Well, yeah. So I talk about beagles a lot. So when I say a beagle, a lot of people are like, oh, well, my A goal is to break four hours, but my B goal would be to get a 405. And yes, that's a beagle, sure. But I think you need to to really focus on what your process goals are. Because Mm. even if the weather is terrible, you're not going to PR you will still be a better marathoner having run that marathon, no matter what the results are. So what you need to do ahead of time is focus on what are the things in the process that you did right. Was it showing up on time? <laughs> was it <laughs> was it nailing your fueling? Mm-hmm. Was it readjusting your expectations? Was it going as fast as possible the final 5K? Was it holding back the first 20 miles? Was it negative splits? You know, if you have a terrible race, but you can still execute your strategy, that's amazing. You know, if even if you're off your time, 
if you can still get the spirit of what you are trying to do, you will be a better marathoner. Now, if you are so focused on that time goal, and believe me, I know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> that was my whole thing. <laughs> if you're so focused on that time goal and you don't hit it, you are going to feel terrible because that's your only metric of success. You know, if we think of the watch as our only metric of success, we are setting ourselves up for failure over and over and over again. And, you know, the one time you hit it, great, you feel awesome. But then you're like, well, what am I going to do next? Let's find another time goal. So I love time goals. Time goals are incredibly motivating, but that's one moment in time. You know, think about all the things that you are doing to get there. So, you know, don't be, yes, be focused on the time, sure. But think about all the ways that you can run the race successfully that have nothing to do with time. Oh, you're so right. There's such a like matrix of potential like successes and growth opportunities in the training process and then in the race like you said being flexible is huge we had mm-hmm. Natalie Mitchell on I don't know if you know her she has the sweet run podcast with her husband Gerald and she was talking about her DNF and how she took it in stride and I like I find that more amazing than her running like a 245 marathon or something, sure. you know, like I just, there's, yeah, you're right. There are just so many ways to give yourself a grade and see where you improve. And even if it's a terrible race, like there's still so many like mental strength boxes that you checked doing that. And then you have like a nice measuring stick too for the next race where you can be like, well, at least it wasn't that race. You yes. Know? At least yes, it was at better least- than that. It lowers the bar, if nothing else. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we have that to hold on to. Did you ever unpack for yourself why you held on so tightly to that time goal? Yeah, I think I just, there's a couple things for sure. So the biggest thing is I knew I could do it. And, you know, how do I know? There was a lot of workouts that told me that I was right there. I have kind of an interesting physiology that I run a marathon with my heartbeat at 175 beats a minute, right? Wow. So it's, I know. I'm Frank Shorter did that too. So, but what that <laughs> You're means- You're in good company. I know. <laughs> but what that means is if I race a 5K, my 5K equivalency times don't correlate to the marathon. It would say that there's no way that I could do what I can do in the marathon. And so, you know, so my 5K times were not telling me, hey, you can run a marathon under three hours. But my longer workouts were, you know, my more endurance focused workouts were saying, hey, yeah, you have the fitness to do that. So I was like, look, I know that I can do this. I am fit enough to do this. I just have to actually do the thing. So again, it was more like the puzzle than the actual result. But of course, the actual result was super important to me too. Like, remember I said that there was a group in town and, Mm -hmm. you know, of really fast women. Like, I was not even anywhere close to being the fastest. I was like in the B group, you know, of women my age, like super, super fast, talented women. And, you know, I wanted to be one of the fast girls, you know? It's like a popularity contest in high school, Mm -hmm. you know? I wanted to be a fast girl. And, you know, it sounds silly even even saying that, but I wanted to be a part of the club, you know? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to say to other people and myself that I could do it. 
So, Uh you know, I'm not embarrassed to admit that. I know that that kind of sounds like, oh, you should do it for bigger reasons or whatever. No, but I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think that is so common. Like, yeah. It's a lot of it is extrinsically motivated. 100%. And And you know what? You know, I had people when I ran the three hours and 29 seconds, I had people say, well, you did it. You ran a three hour marathon. And I was like, well, no, I want that too. I don't, (laughs) you know, and so I had to do it again to prove to myself, you know, and yeah. There's no difference between, you know, that 30 seconds. There's no difference. Am I that much fitter for running a minute faster? Absolutely not. Does it, am I less of a person if I miss that goal? Absolutely not. But, you know, I also run in circles in my driveway to get my watch to have, you know, perfect (laughs) mileage. You know, that is stupid too, but we all do it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I know. We runners have so many like a logical neurosis. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I would love, I should have a psychologist on and just have them unpack all, all I this know. for us. I like know. why do we do these things? Because we're type matter. A. We're, yeah. <laughs> oh, we love yes. numbers. We love data. We, you know, running is like a pass fail sometimes and it feels really good to pass. You know, you do the work and you usually get the results until you don't. (laughs) Right. Yes. And then you can be as wise as you were and take a step back and look at what needs to be adjusted. Yeah. So (laughs) we have so many similarities. (laughs) So, okay. I would love to know. So part of your coaching is you do like mental strength exercises every week with your athletes, which I love that idea so much. Can you share some examples of what you do with your athletes? Awesome. Yeah. So what I do is I've made videos. So I have about six months worth of workouts. My goal is to get the whole year. So I need to double that. But so I do, I talk about a specific tip that can be helpful and ways to practice it that week in your work. Workouts. And so some of them are things that you practice actually during the run to kind of combat the negative self talk. And some of them are things that you practice outside of running, such as goal setting. And, you know, like we talked about the process goals before versus results goals. That is definitely, that's the one I lead off with always because that one's super important. So, you know, and I am not a sports psychologist. What I've gathered all these tips from interviewing elites, from interviewing researchers, from, you know, the science that I've read about these things, and basically trying to study elite athletes, not just runners, but in other fields too. So, Once you start looking for these things, you're going to see them a lot. So one of my favorites is called distanced self-talk. So that is basically talking to yourself in third person. And you'll notice that athletes like LeBron James or Muhammad Ali will talk about themselves or David Goggins will talk about themselves in third person. And, you know, LeBron James has got to do what's best for LeBron James. And (laughs) and it sounds super (laughs) silly. You're like, why is he talking about himself like that? Oh my gosh. (laughs) If I start doing that, my family is just going to kick me out. Well, (laughs) you don't have to say it out loud. You say it in your head. And so the reason it works is because you believe what you say to yourself. And if you're talking in third person, it sounds like you actually have a coach inside your head or a cheerleader inside your head. So 
what I do, let's say I'm running up a hill and it's hard. And I say to myself, Claire, you can do it. Claire, you can get up this hill. Claire, drive your knees. And I'm just like, oh, oh, somebody's talking to me. Someone's running with me right now. <laughs> and, you know, again, these things sound super silly when we just talk about them. You're like, that is so cheesy and hokey. But try it on your next run. And I promise you, it will make a difference. It is absolutely bizarre, but it totally works. Oh, I'm so going to try that. I believe there was a Seinfeld episode about the. Did you watch <laughs> Seinfeld back in the day? Yeah, I mean, in the 90s. Yeah. Yes, I did. Like when yes. it was out. <laughs> yes. There was one where I, Jimmy loves basketball and he referred to himself in <laughs> the third person. And he wore the moon shoes, which actually kind of look like the old school Hokas. Anyways, I digress. I love that. And I'm going to try that tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah. One of the sillier ones that I use is called Alter Ego. And so basically it's coming up with a persona that you use when race day comes. So it's not actually you, but it's like the most badass version of you. So, Uh you know, so Beyonce, for example, does this. She has an alter ego called Sasha Fierce. And when she goes on stage, she is no longer Beyonce from Texas. She is Sasha Fierce. And she has this totally different attitude when she is on stage. And so I encourage people to come up with their Sasha Fierce when they are running. So it's not, you know, sweet, innocent Claire that's so nice. It is Sasha Fierce that is racing, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it really, really works because you don't have to play it nice. You know, if you are a competitive athlete that actually races against other people, you can have that alter ego. And, you know, as women especially, we tend to be like, oh, we're nice. We don't want to offend anybody. But if you're in competition, you're trying to beat other people. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. And we kind of downplay our, you know, aggressiveness, you know, to our detriment if we're competing. You know, if you want to be number one, you've got to beat other people. That's just the truth. <laughs> and if you don't personally have that, you know, competitive attitude, but you want to be number one, Go ahead and try on a different personality. Be somebody else, you know, on the race course, you know. So that one is kind of a fun one that I, that I talk about a lot. Oh, I love that. That <laughs> is super fun. I'm going to have to tap into my like old cross country days because I was the girl that would go through the shoot with like her arms out. And I may or may not have hip checked a couple people, Ooh. you know. <laughs> so I'm going to have to revive that old school Whitney. Okay. <laughs> I, that is a great one. Yeah. And some of them are ones that are that don't take quite as, as much imagination. I mean, I have all sorts of imagination games, too, that you can play. But some of them are, like, really rudimentary. So there's lots of ways that you can use counting as a mental strength technique. So I have one athlete that actually counts her steps per mile, which is insane. So she gets up into the thousands or whatever. So she knows exactly how many steps per mile. And that's actually how she paces herself, which for me is way too much math. So (laughs) so what I do a lot, though, let's say I'm running – I don't know, an interval workout on the track. And I am just trying to get to that next 100 meters or that next 200 meters. So what I'll do is start counting. And I will count up to 20. And I don't go higher than 20 because the rhythm starts to get off when you get into too many syllables. Mm -hmm. So just one, two, three, four. And just repeat it over and over and over and over again. And sometimes I'll go with my steps, but it's not important necessarily to go with my steps. But the reason you do that over and over again is because 
counting is something that you learned as a really small child. It is something that is really, really deep inside your head. And so you can do that and focus on that without any thought at all. And what it does is it shuts out the other voices that are saying, this is hard, I'm slowing down. You know, you just have something to focus on. It's kind of like in meditation, you focus on the breath, not necessarily because the breath is anything magical, but it's something to focus on and keep you from thinking other things. So counting can really be sort of a Zen meditation kind of thing when you're working really hard because you can just repeat it over and over and over again. And by the time you've done it a few cycles, your interval's over. So it's a great way to kind of distract your negative thoughts. That's another great one. Are you able to do that count, but also still like keep focused on the pace that you want to be holding? Well, it becomes rhythmic, you know? So, you know, the the rhythm of your counting is going to go with your pace. So, you know, so again, if you do use your steps, you will get into a rhythm, just like a musical rhythm is the same over and over again. Your cadence is going to be the same over and over again. So once you're in a pace, start counting and that will help you stay on pace. So yeah, use your watch, you know, don't ignore your watch. It's great to run by feel. You want to learn how to run by feel. Absolutely. But check yourself every so often to make sure that you are on pace. But I find that overly focusing on pace is kind of like that holding on to the bar of soap thing. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I, that's something that I realize that I get like big time anxiety when I start looking at my watch. It's like as soon as I start feeling just a lot of self-doubt, I'll start obsessively looking at my watch, which just kickstarts that negative feedback cycle. So I try to withhold looking now. I think a lot of people have had success with only looking at the mile splits, you know? Yeah. So what about when self-doubt creeps in, like leading up to a race, all of a sudden you think that you're not capable of running the time that you want to run, or you're feeling like you don't fit in with the other runners that you're hoping to compete with. Do you have tips for how to combat that? Yeah, there's a couple of times when doubt is going to creep in. So it could be like race anxiety, pre-race anxiety right on race day, Or it could be the weeks before when you are in taper, when you are running less and your mind is a little more anxious. You don't have your long runs to get out all of your, you know, anxiety. So doubt starts to creep in. So what I tell people in that stage is, first of all, take a look at your training. So hopefully you've kept a really good training log. Training logs are so important, whether you do it online or on a piece of paper, it doesn't even matter. If you write down, you need to write down more than just your splits. You need to talk about what the weather was like, how you're feeling, what the effort level was. And so you can really look back on that and say, okay, well, I am nervous right now. I don't know if I can do this, but I did that workout. I did that tempo workout really, really well. Or... I was really consistent for my entire, you know, buildup. I only missed one or two workouts, that kind of thing. And this is where a coach can be really, really helpful because it's sometimes hard to look at your own training with a clear head. You know, a coach can actually help you go through that process. But, you know, if you are trying to do something you have never done before, whether it's running a particular distance or whether it's going after a particular time, you don't know that you can do it. You absolutely don't know. You know, it's not up 
to you whether it's going to happen in some cases because you can't pick the weather. You know, you don't know Mm -hmm. how you're going to feel that day. So accepting that you're not going to know until race day and really worrying about it is not going to serve you. So look at all the things that you've done right. You know, go ahead and make your plans for race day. So the more decisions that you can make ahead of time, the less stressed you're going to be on race day. So know your outfit, know what you're going to eat, know exactly when you're going to eat, you know, planning out all the little details, but still be flexible. Things are going to go wrong. But that can give you a sense of calm that things are going to be okay because you have done your best to prepare. So, you know, again, do it all as much as possible, but you aren't going to know what is going to happen. That's part of the fun of it. You know, we don't know what our future is going to be. We try really hard. And then, you know, there's one day where we're supposed to prove our worth. (laughs) You know, it's race day. And are we going to get our dream? Are we not going to get our dream? You know, part of that anxiety is excitement. You know, that's why we're doing this. If we knew that we could do it 100%, it's not really that interesting. You know, like I know that I could walk a mile right now. You know, and I'm not really super excited about that. But if I was injured and, you know, was just didn't know if I could actually walk a mile right now, that would be like exciting and and anxiety inducing, you know, because of the uncertainty. So embrace the uncertainty. That's kind of the whole point. And again, other things that can calm you are the visualization. So I did a podcast on my last show, The Run to the Top, that was a guided visualization for marathoners. So that's in the archive somewhere. But I want to do a whole series on guided visualization for runners because it was so important. This is what I wanted when I was training hard. And so I went and made it myself. But it's to really just like sit and be calm and relax, visualize everything about the race, go through all of it. Again, think about the positives, think about the negatives. And if nothing else, you have spent a few minutes being calm, you know, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't work, you know, (laughs) you've spent a few minutes chilling out and relaxing those nerves. So, you know, even if you believe all this stuff is hocus pocus, woo woo, new agey stuff, you've at least chilled out for a few minutes while you've done it. Okay. Now that was great. So what about a lot of people fall into the comparison trap. Sounds like maybe you flirted with that a little bit with the fast girls in your town. What advice do you have for people that tend to compare themselves in an unhealthy way? Well, you know, comparison is something that, you know, we talk about as a bad thing. And it is absolutely in our nature to compare. We are social animals and comparing ourselves to other people in our world is how we rank ourselves. It's how we set our society up. You know, it's how we decide what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. So before we, you know, try to demonize comparison, understand that is absolutely part of being human. It's a fundamental part of being human. And it's not something we should actually change. So when I, you know, talk to people about comparison, I say flip it on its head. Don't look at it as, oh, I'm comparing myself to this person. I'm never going to be as good as this person. Look at that person you're comparing yourself to. And look at it in a way that shows you what you are interested in. So if you are looking at a faster runner and you're comparing yourself, that should be a sign. Take that as a sign of curiosity about what really drives you. 
You know, you're jealous of people who have what you want. And that is a really important lesson. Look at that tells you what you want in your life. It's like a roadmap. You know, look at your jealousy in that way or look at your envy in that way and just be like, oh, wait a second. That person has what I want. That person seems like they have what where they are where I want to be. So wish them well and then figure out a way to work on that for yourself. So, you know, I think trying to wish away comparison or to, you know, say that it's all bad, I think that that's self-destructive. I don't think Mm. that that is helpful because that's part of being human. And so when you look at it that way, it really kind of flips it around and you can turn it on yourself and be like, okay, that person has what I want. I'm going to figure out how I can get it. That's a really interesting take. So you kind of use them to help you set your goals and illuminate what you're hungry for, but then you focus on yourself and how to get there. You don't yeah. continue to to obsess over what they're doing. Exactly, because that person who's doing that thing, you don't wish bad on that person. You want them to do well, right? You know, there, it doesn't matter if how many people run X time or whatever. Everybody's really running their own race. And so when you can look at it that way, because you can only change yourself, you know, so mm-hmm. it, it actually becomes a productive exercise versus a destructive exercise. I think that's beautiful. With your own athletes, are there any common pitfalls, mental training pitfalls that you see that you help them through? Yeah, you know, I would say, so I did something a couple weeks ago. So I do a, an intake survey where, you know, I t- ask people all about their training. So I'm getting ready to like make their training plan. And I asked every single person, what do you struggle with the most when it comes to your running? And so I went through a couple hundred of these and people, the highest answer, the biggest answer, most popular answer <laughs> was <laughs> I give up on myself too easily. Mm. And I was just like, wow, wow, why did we give up on ourselves? They, people say, I know I can do it, but I give up on myself. Or I'm in a race, and when things get hard, I slow down, and I know I can give more. So I have to say this is more common in the women that I coach than in the mm-hmm. men. You know, men have their own things. <laughs> <laughs> but women tend to hear the negative voice and believe it for some reason. And so that's a big part of what I teach people is to to kind of switch that and be like, okay, why are you why are you giving up on yourself? What are the voices? So the first step in changing it is to understand that you do it and to recognize it. So when those voices come in your head like you should slow down or this is hard, I want to quit. The best thing you can do is to recognize it as a voice. You know, yes, it's part of you, but it is coming and you should expect it. So the little trick that I do with this, and I did this in all my racing, is I gave my negative voice a name, and her name was Nancy, negative Nancy. <laughs> you, know, not, yes. you know, not very creative, but that was her name. <laughs> and I, I flesh her out completely. So she is this sweet Southern grandma. And she loves me and she doesn't want to see me get hurt. And she is just like, your family will love you if you slow down. This is too hard for you. Why don't you just quit? Or, you know, she says all of these negative things in a very sweet and nice protective voice. And so what I do before every race is I say, okay, I know Nancy is coming. 
she wants to drive, but I'm going to put her in the backseat of the bus. So when I do that, when I give her a personality, when she shows up, I recognize her. So when that voice says, you should slow down, this is hard, I can say to myself, oh, that's just Nancy. Hi, Nancy. (laughs) Get on board. Come on. I knew you were coming. Hop on the bus, but you're not driving. (laughs) That is one that is like the best tip that I heard. That's amazing because I think a lot of people – When somebody tells you you can't do something, like that just fires you up more. Like my dad is the reason why I run and we had lunch the other day and he was like, you know, Whitney, you should just focus on like doing well in the master's category. And I was like, I just totally almost ripped his head off. I was like, no, no, dad, I'm going to be faster than I was when I was 16. Watch me, you know, but during a race when Nancy shows up, you know, tend to listen to her like, oh, you're right. I am tired. I think I'm hurting more than everybody else here. And so, but like personifying that voice is genius. Yeah. But you, I would have never thought to do that. The trick is though, you have to do it in workouts. You can't just expect that this is going to work on marathon day. You cannot do that. You have to practice that in your heart tempos. You know, you have to remember to do that. So this is why I do these workouts, you know, these mental strength workouts with my athletes each week because it's like you can't just have all this, you know, on race day if you don't practice it. You have to do this over and over and over again. Okay. So what about for the women? Obviously, I coach mother runners and a lot of them, you know, we're being pulled in a gazillion Mm -hmm. different directions. And so a lot of them give up on themselves just because they just have like too many things outside of their running life that are demanding their time and attention. Sleep interruptions are a big thing. And they're just exhausted. And they're like, I just, I can't go for a run because I'm just, I'm too tired or, and so they give up. How do you help athletes like that? Where it's not necessarily like they're telling themselves that they're, they can't do it, but they just have all these outside forces and it's very easy to tell, to convince yourself that, you know, this is selfish and Hmm. I need to be putting these other things in front. Well, so the first thing is figure out what actually is realistic for you and your running and your life. You know, the marathon gets all the glory But that might not actually fit into your life right now. You know, maybe the half actually is a better fit. Maybe 5Ks are a better fit. So, you know, be realistic for yourself. You know, if you have only, I don't know, three hours a week to run, the marathon's not for you right now. You know, that's just not preparing yourself well physically. And you're going to be disappointed if you really just simply don't have that kind of time. So, Really look at what it takes to train for whatever you're interested in and figure out if you can find the time. So once you've done that and you figure out, yes, okay, I have X amount of hours you know, in a week, I can train for X race. The second thing to really, really focus on is that if you're feeling like mom guilt, like you're going out for a run while you know the kids are home or they're watching TV or your partner is watching them and you feel like you should be there or whatever. So first of all, Remember that you are setting the example for your kids. You are showing them that putting yourself first matters. You are showing them that being healthy matters. You are showing them that regular exercise matters. You are showing them that working hard for a goal matters. You are showing them that you are important, you know, and that you are not there to serve them. You are there to help turn them into 
good adults. And part of raising kids is being that example. It's not waiting on them hand and foot. Yes, you need to be there for them, but it's not to serve them. It is to model what being a good person is. So look at them and say, if they were an adult, would you want them to run? And if the answer is yes, then yes, you should be running. You know, <laughs> you know, you should want for yourself what you want for the kid, the, you know, for your kids. Oh, so- yes. <laughs> Beautifully put. Yes. You know, if you want them to grow up and, you know, be in service of their children, then keep doing it. (laughs) I don't want to do that. You know, I'm trying to raise competent, healthy, happy adults. Yes. Amen. (laughs) Beautifully put. I have enjoyed talking with you so much. You have so many useful, just wise nuggets. So I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me. And people can learn more about you at theplantedrunner.com. Yes. Which how long has that been around for? I have been doing that since 2016. So yeah, so it just started as a blog for just for fun. You know, I wasn't trying to do anything with it. And then, you know, I eventually became a coach. And now it's like, it's my full time business now. So I've got theplantedrunner.com. Obviously, you can follow me at theplantedrunner on Instagram. That has been going crazy lately. So I share a lot of tips on Instagram. And the podcast is The Planted Runner. So pretty easy (laughs) to find me. Yeah. All right, Claire, will you make it pretty easy to find you? Oh, I wanted to ask you, when did you start being a plant-based eater? 10 years ago this year. So I started, I was fully plant-based before I got into really running again. So I've been, this whole journey has just been fueled by plants. Awesome. That is amazing, too. The mm-hmm. fact that you haven't gotten injured. And nope. yeah, because I think a lot of people believe that if, once you cut out meat, you're flirting with injury. But no, I mean, there's things that you need to do to do it right. So it's not just cut out meat. You got to figure out what to put in its place. You right. can't just eat salads all day long or you're going to be miserable. So you do <laughs> need to learn how to, you know, Fuel yourself properly. Don't just cut things out. Learn how to add things in. But regardless of whether you're 100% plant-based or 50% plant-based or 90% plant-based, whatever it is, I don't think anyone's going to argue that more fruits and vegetables in our life is a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think that's another wise tip there. If you just eat salads all the time, you're going to be miserable. Yes, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, well, we may need to bookmark this discussion for a later podcast talking about how to fuel your runs, plant-based nutrition. Yeah, my husband went vegetarian a long time ago. And he, for a while, was like only eating cheese. Ooh, <laughs> like I think yeah. this, I don't think you're doing this right, hon. <laughs> I'm sure that um, was rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've come a long way from there. But yeah, he had a lot to learn. Anyways, thank you so much. And I look forward to connecting with you on so many other topics in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, if people are interested in fueling, I have a free guide if I can just mention that real quick on yeah. what to eat before, during, and after a run that they can get a free download. It's at theplantedrunner.com slash join, J-O-I-N. Awesome. That's great because I know lots of people are confused as to what to eat. So awesome. Thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you, Claire. And thank you all for listening to The Passionate Runner. You can find full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any of the resources mentioned at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from the episodes, please leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash runner. And we'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Talk to you next time. Thank you.